For our first message today, we have a split sermon from Mr. Curtis Whiteley entitled Faith and Witness in the Sudden Storm. Mr. Whiteley. Thank you, Reggie. Well, good afternoon. It's uh, once again, as always, wonderful to see everyone here this week. And uh, it's been such a crazy week. I'm sure that if you, some of you are probably just as exhausted as I am in regards to uh, the chaos that has befallen our nation the past five days. It seems like, you know, our heads have had a whiplash from all the things that have been going on. And, you know, I, I, I can't really remember a time uh, where I've seen so much going on at once. And I was, you know, reflecting of course, what, what had taken place this week, and of course I'm talking nationally, uh, as well as locally to some extent. And looking back at these five days, you know, we can kind of draw a timeline. Uh, you know, starting on Monday, in one of our nation's most infamous cities, the city of Boston. I've never been there. Of course, we do have a uh, Landon who used to live there and moved away there, from there about less than a year ago and said that it was just walking distance from where they used to live there in Boston uh, from where the bombings went off. But of course it was at one of the most infamous cities in our country at, the, at one of the most infamous sporting events. And I'm not a runner. Uh, I know several friends that are runners and they say that it would be their dream to be able to run in this sporting event, this famous worldwide international sporting event that the Boston Marathon is. And of course, in the subsequent days following these terrorist attacks, as they are uh, on our nation, uh, on Monday, we had other things going on. And in fact, I think, uh, I don't know if it was one or two letters, or I didn't really keep up with this story, but we had uh, you know, a similar scare as we had back in 2001, or, or 2002, whichever year it was, with the, the letters that were sent to some of our governmental uh, officials that had a substance called ricin, which was a very deadly and toxic uh, substance. And then, of course, on Wednesday evening, uh, we saw, well, we saw two things. First, we saw the absolute amazing, and I say this in comparison, the nuclear-like explosion that took place in a, in a town called West there in Texas. And, of course, you know, this obviously took several lives. We don't know how many uh, injured numerous people and has left many people homeless, destroyed schools and, of course, a, I think a nursing home, a, a relatively small town. Of course, we living in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, many of us living in rural areas, such as a town like this town in Texas, we can understand how much devastation something like that could, of course, cause anywhere, but especially to such a small community as this community was in Texas. And of course, not to mention, uh, some of us also had a little bit of a scare uh, on Wednesday evening, uh, whenever we had the uh, tornado sirens going off. If you lived in the area that I lived in, Bixby, and me and my family uh, uh, were keeping an eye on the weather, and of course, uh, I live about five miles from my parents' house, and they have built a storm shelter a few years ago or storm cellar, and uh, with Ron and Latona, they were just next door. Uh, but some people might think that I have a lot of faith because I waited till 11.45, literally, to, 
to decide to go over there because that's what we were going to do that night. And I'm, I'm driving in, in hell and I'm driving with these tornado sirens going off it. I don't want you to be confused. It, it was laziness. It wasn't faith that prompted me to be so late. And, and I probably will never do that again. And of course, yesterday, uh, we might not have had a lot of time to reflect on this, uh, but we you know, marked the 18th anniversary of the Oklahoma City bombings. And as a teacher, many of my students, they weren't alive. In fact, uh, 1995 was the year that many of the age group that I teach, the year they were born. And so they have a lot less knowledge and obvious memories uh, of this attack right here. And then, of course, concluding the events uh, was finally the capture uh, of the perpetrators and, of course, the, of, of the, the killing of one of them, uh, the bombers there in uh, Boston. You know, and I was thinking about these events, and, and, and usually, you know, I'm not one to uh, get real mixed up in these things. Of course, all of us living in this country, it's, you know, especially living in a post-9-11 world, and it's hard not to think back at images of 9-11 and, and this crazy world we live in. And I think that we were reminded of several truths this past week. First of all, I think that we were reminded that there is absolutely no limitations on the evils and atrocities that mere humans can commit. We are also reminded of the vulnerability that we are as mortal humans living on this earth. And of course, another truth we learned, and we've always known, so it's kind of hard to learn this, but we need Jesus Christ to come back more than ever. Today I have basically two points, or two things that I want us to think about. This message today is going to be more of a devotional. Just for me in preparing this message today and, 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 and thinking about the things that took place and, and, of course, thinking as a Christian living in this world, you know, a lot of times we need to reflect on what our response should be. Because in some ways, many times, things that happen in this world are opportunities for us not only to authenticate our faith and what we know is true, but also to be a testimony to the world. You know, we are a people of, of a great hope. A hope that is greater, more sure, and, and stronger than any event or events that can take place on this earth. And the first thing that I want to talk about today is about our faith in God in the sudden storm. Our faith in God in the sudden storm. The sudden storms of life. The second thing, I want us to look at our response and witness in the midst of these sudden storms. Let's go to Matthew, the 8th chapter. And I've spoke on this chapter before, on this particular group of passages. And uh, I've actually spoke on it in times of tragedy. And I did kind of go back to this passage and I kind of restudied it. And I tried to look for some new insights. And I was prompted to go through it, uh, actually, because one of the things I was talking with my sister Chrissy the other night was about how Jesus 
literally has control and power over nature. You know, you're sitting in a, in a storm cellar and you're, you're hearing these winds and this thunder that literally, and earlier in that evening I happened to be at Matthew Steele's house and I was sitting there talking to him and this bolt of lightning I could just see in the, in the mirror and literally just almost blinded me. I'm sitting, you know, facing the wall. He's facing uh, outside. He's facing his window. And I just see he's behind, you know, behind him is the wall and there's this mirror. And I just see this flash of light. I'm just almost, it made me just almost shut my eyes and blink. And just this, this rattle that was just, you know, so amazing. And of course, this thunder probably was three or four miles away, but still the power of nature. And knowing that God has power over that. And we were talking, me and my sister, later that night, of course, as we were unified because of this power that can take place and the un unknowingness of what could happen and trying to obviously uh, make, have common sense and take the appropriate precautions. Uh, she was just talking about how just this week she had read the scripture uh, about how Christ had power that the winds obeyed Jesus. We're going to pick it up in Matthew, the 8th chapter, and picking up in verse 23. It says, Now when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him, and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea, so that the boat was covered with waves. But he was asleep. Then his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, Why are you fearful, O you of little faith. Then he arose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So the men marveled, saying, Who can this be, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Now if we were just to sit back and do some observation, and some, you know, take a look at some of the things that were going on here, one of the first things we, we see is that the, the place and and, of course, the body of water in which they were on was the Sea of Galilee. And this sea is famous. Scientists and archaeologists and people that have lived in this region and recordings from history, this sea is famous for its sudden and violent storms. And a lot of this is created by things that are kind of a little bit beyond my understanding, but it's geographical situated or situation where it's approximately over 600 feet below sea level, and then, of course, with the higher uh, elevation of the lands to the east and the way the wind can come through these, this area where the Sea of Galilee, it can cause great and quick storms. Storms and winds that can come upon people on the sea very, very quickly. We also notice that, of course, these storms were causing a very intense wave of water that was obviously starting to overcome the boat, the boat itself. We see that where it says that the, the waves were covering the boat. But one of the most important things to notice in this passage, there's a couple of them, but the first thing is the fact or the demeanor of the disciples. Of course, the obvious is they were fear. They were fearful. They were scared. They were horrified that they were going to drown. And you know what's emphasized in this when you consider who these disciples were, what they did for a living. Several of these disciples 
had probably been on this lake thousands of times. They were fishermen. And we know that with this being the case, they were experienced being on this very sea. And as experienced men on this sea, we know that this was probably a pretty intense storm. Because just some small storm probably wouldn't rattle men that had been on the sea thousands of times. Men that actually had their career on the sea. But the disciples also recognized their lack of power as humans. You know, the situation that they were in, it was out of their control. You know, they were humans. They couldn't do anything, but they did recognize not only their lack of ability or power as humans, but they did recognize that Jesus, maybe He just had the ability to do something. Because we see that they did call for Jesus for help when we see he, they say, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But they were fearful. You know, they were in this boat with Jesus and they had been walking with Jesus for approximately somewhere around a year at this point chronologically, or at least over a year. And they had seen what Jesus had done. And of course, Jesus' reaction, well, first his reaction was nothing. He was asleep, as if there was nothing going on at all. He was asleep and there was no indication that the storm was affecting or disturbing his peace. We also see that when Jesus was woken up, he kind of almost had a disappointment. Or shall we say, he was surprised. He was surprised at their lack of faith. He was surprised that these disciples were so fearful. But despite this, Jesus still acted. And of course, he gets up, he rebukes the winds, literally commanded the winds to stop. And the winds and the sea becomes calm. And Jesus does this despite their lack of faith. And interestingly enough, right after this, we notice a great contrast between the disciples and between Jesus. Because the last thing that happens is, is we see that the disciples are absolutely amazed. Their reaction. They're amazed at what Jesus had just done. They actually said, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey his voice? So it's interesting. You have disciples who are surprised that Jesus did this and who he was. But you also have a Jesus, a Christ, who is surprised at their lack of faith. So in this, we have to ask the question, what can this speak to us today? You know, what are some of the principles? What are some of the applicable principles that we can apply to our life? And I've come up with three short ones. There are many more we could add to this. But as I was reflecting upon this passage, the number one thing I thought about was seeing the disciples and how they had been with Jesus, seeing his infirmities that he had healed, Seeing the diseases, you know, just before this, he had healed a man of leprosy. And now they just witnessed him exercise power over the natural elements. But the first thing we can infer from this is that we, of course, believe in Jesus. But do we believe 
that He will do the things we ask Him. In other words, we believe Jesus can, we believe God has the power, but do we believe that Jesus will? You know, a very interesting reality, as I've already mentioned, is the disciples' experiences with Jesus. And, and as I've already mentioned, Matthew's Gospel, up to this point in the 8th chapter, just checking some of the, the, you know, the chronology and some of the harmony of the Gospels, they're well in within a year of following after Christ. In fact, that means that they had walked with Christ for around a year, seeing Him heal the, the sicknesses and the diseases. And they had witnessed also not just the, the works that He did, but also the great wisdom and insight and understanding that He had in the Word of God. And as the storm came upon them suddenly, they did seem to have some sort of belief, some sort of maybe curiosity. Well, you know, he, he healed the sick, the lepers. You know, he, he did these things, but we're still fearful because we're not sure. We're not sure. Yeah, of course we know he, he could probably do something, but their fear seems to indicate that they're not totally confident that he would. Or even cared. And we have to ask the question, what about our storms in life? Are we confident that God cares? And of course, you know, we know that God can do whatever He wants. We know that God has power that is beyond anything that we can imagine. Beyond any natural phenomenon in this universe, spiritual phenomenon in this universe, God has power over. But do we believe that God will exercise this, especially in times that we're experiencing sudden storms. And this reminds me of the story of Abraham. We've talked about Abraham. We, we know uh, his story. And of course, Abraham was not a perfect individual. You know, he did have his obvious failings and his weaknesses himself. But despite this, Abraham is known as a great man of faith in the Scriptures. You know, a great example of this, of course, is in Genesis, the 15th chapter, if we want to just turn there real quick. Abraham didn't just have a faith in God. He had a living confidence in God. And we're going to see there's a little bit of a difference. In Genesis 15, verse 1, we're going to see the confidence that God or that Abraham shows in God. Of course, this is after that God had brought Abraham. He had formerly been known as Abram, and brought him out of his homeland into this new land, this land that was unfamiliar. And in verse 1 of Genesis, the 15th chapter, it says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? Then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, indeed one born in my house. He is my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This one shall not be your heir. But one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Then he brought him outside 
and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And the faith that Abraham employed here was a living faith. It wasn't just a, yeah, I know you can do that. It was a, I know you will do that. There's a difference. There's a difference between believing and knowing that God can do something and believing that God will do something. Now, the second point I want to bring out today, the second thing, the second you know, spiritual acclimable principle that we can gain from this story here of, of Jesus and His disciples on that Sea of Galilee that day is that the more we understand who Jesus is, the less we will fear. The more we understand who Jesus is, the less we will fear. And just thinking about it, you know, faith is it's a process. It's not just something that, you know, we one day all of a sudden just have 100% faith. But it's a growing process. You know, let's just imagine some of our closest friends, some of our closest relationships with, with co-workers, our spouses, our friends. And just like anything else, our relationship, they go through a process. You know, we don't understand everything about them or about that person or individual at once, but these things are developed over time. And as we grow in our relationships, not only do we become closer to this person, to this individual or these people, but we also, we grow in our understanding of their attitudes. We grow in our understanding of their beliefs and personalities and abilities, which leads us to grow in our understanding and knowing how they will respond and the same is the case with God. Of course, there's always things that we are not going to understand about God while we're living as humans. There's always going to be things that, you know, that are not for us to know at this point in time. But we can take, for example, the disciples. And we see, you know, we have that luxury of seeing them grow in the relationship with Jesus. We get to see them at the very beginning when Jesus calls them out as disciples and followers. You know, all through the Gospels into the, the, the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, where we see that, you know, obviously they're seeing Jesus and what took place and the things He did, and He's crucified, and then He's resurrected, and then, of course, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes. And we see this great transformation that takes place because of the Holy Spirit coming on that day of Pentecost. But a lot of that isn't just because of the Holy Spirit, but a lot of that is because that Holy Spirit is enabling these disciples to basically have faith in what they had already seen take place in their walks with Jesus, and they're seeing His actions. And it's the same for us. You know, it's the same for us as we are walking here on this earth. Just like the disciples, they essentially, in their walk with Christ, in their physical walk, but also their spiritual walk, after Christ had been resurrected and ascended. They essentially walked in that relationship, grew in that relationship, and were able to understand the mind of Christ, to understand what Jesus would do, not just what He could do. And that's the goal for all of us. That is the goal for all of us. Something very significant 
and thinking about this walk that the disciples had with Jesus Christ, with our Savior, the same Savior that they had, the same person that they walked with on this earth, something that they said right, or he said right before he was arrested to be tried and crucified. In John, the 15th chapter, just before Jesus goes to his obvious crucifixion, in John 15, verse 13, he says something to his disciples. He says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for, servant, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things I heard from my Father. I have made known to you. You do not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatever you ask the Father is in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. And of course, we know, we know that God is our heavenly Father, and of course, Jesus Christ is our elder brother, and he's our Lord. But right here, Jesus also kind of gives as a picture of another type of relationship. You know, it's supposed to be likened also, not just in a family, but, but, but as a friend. The disciples were given a new title, not just brothers, but friends. And this is special. And Jesus tells us why he calls them friends, because he lets his friends know what they were doing. It's not just something that's meant for the group of the twelve. But Jesus also is to be our friend. Because we are included in this. As the context tells us right here, He says that those who are His friends are those whom He has chosen to lay down His life. So we can see that genuine believers in Jesus Christ, genuine followers of Christ, are to be friends. And that includes all of us. And of course, as friends... It's supposed to be friends of Christ, true believers. We have been given insight to God's plan. We can look at the holy days. Uh, we can look at even the Sabbath day. And the great insight that it gives all of us into God's plan and what He's doing with humanity. What He's doing with all the things that's going on in this world and the future things. We can understand what Christ, what God is doing. There's some things we can't understand, of course, at this time. But a friend is supposed to be one who is genuinely faith in Christ, genuinely following Christ, and not just having insight into God and His plan, but growing in that insight and in that walk with God. And as James, we know the book of James, and a very great book, shows us a lot about our relationships among the brethren, or relationships with God, or relationships uh, with each other. James pointed out that this faith that we are to have is to prompt works. This faith that we are to have is not just to be a dead faith, but it's supposed to be a living faith that leads to what? To works. James, the second chapter, verse 14. Interesting thing, we just went over what, what God had to say about Abraham. 
And we see that Abraham believed God, not just that he could do it, but that he would do it. But James, the second chapter, picking it up in verse 14. James, the second chapter, picking it up in verse 14. It says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him if a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food? And one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does it profit? Thus also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe there is a one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works, faith was made perfect. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works, not just or by faith alone. So we see that Abraham's faith was authenticated by his works. He didn't just say, yes, I believe God, but he was prompted to obey God by his works. And interestingly enough, there's that word again. In spite or in, in regards and in response of him living out a life that wasn't just by faith, but it was a faith that ended up resulting in works, got him the title the friend of God. The friend of God. And we know the walk that Abraham had with God. Let's move on to my second, or my third point, my final point. And the things we can infer from this day at, at the sea with Jesus' disciples is that actions, specifically Jesus' actions, authenticated both his claims and his words. Jesus' actions authenticated both his claims and words. You know, as Jesus walked this earth, he wasn't the only one that was going around and trying to gather disciples. We see the Pharisees, we see the Sadducees, we see all the religious ideology that was out there. And we see that, you know, of course there were people that were religious leaders and they had people that followed them and they taught in the synagogue and they taught uh, in different areas and different types of schools. And they had disciples. You know, Jesus, he didn't just recruit disciples so he could have a following for the sake of gathering a following. He didn't just tell people who he was and what to do and how to do it, but rather, he proved who he was through his actions. In other words, as the old saying goes, he did not just talk the talk, but he walked the walk. We have to ask the question, do we follow Christ on this principle. Of course, we're not Jesus. We're not the Messiah. But we can still take a lesson from Jesus by looking to see, do we, do our actions authenticate what we claim to be? Who we claim to be? What our words claim to be? We say we are Christian, we have faith in God, but do our actions, and we have to ask that personally,
You know, a passage that I'm really familiar with, and all of us are here, is 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, picking up in verse 20. 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, verse 20. And looking and just trying to ask the question about, you know, does our lives, do they authenticate? Are they consistent with what our claims are as followers of Christ? We look at 2 Corinthians, the 5th chapter, picking up in verse 20. It says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God, for He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. And it's interesting that this word ambassador that I'm trying to bring out. Of course, we're very familiar with this term, but it's a, it's a Greek word that actually literally means to be a senior by implication that is a representative. And the word is usually used as an elder who has who was experienced and served on behalf of a uh, to, to represent a king from one country to another, and of course we see that in our modern day, uh, we have ambassadors, of course, in our world or in our country that are ambassadors to other foreign nations, and literally that's what Paul is calling us ambassadors. You know, we are from the kingdom of God that is coming. And it's likened to being representatives, some a people almost like from a foreign land. Because this is not our kingdom, this world. And we know that. Our kingdom, as Jesus said, is not of this world. So we are acting on behalf of God as representatives of the King of Heaven. With God working through us as He does His will in this earth. We have to ask the question, when the storm comes, are our actions, are our demeanor consistent with what we are called to be? And of course, we can apply this you know, idea of ambassadorship, this idea of being a representative in many ways. And, and we know that we are supposed to be living uh, representatives of God in, in the way uh, we obey God, uh, we obey His law, uh, we obey His will. Uh, we live a life of righteousness or we are trying to obtain uh, to a way of righteousness after Christ. We are trying to live a life that is befitting a child of God. But as representatives, we are also supposed to be faithfully living our lives in such a way that our life authenticates our testimony, especially among people who might not be believers. Because what witness is it if you say you're a Christian or a follower after Jesus Christ, but you don't live like that. And I don't just mean in terms of righteousness, in terms of trying to be faithful to uh, God's command. Those are very important. But what's also equally important is that we are living as representatives as far as our faith in God. Are we living our life as representatives as if we are friends with God? That we have faith in God. That we know what He not just can do, but He will do. And that's the question. And in this way, we as believers, in this way, are supposed to be unique, distinct, because we know who our friend is. And not just what He can do, but rather what He will do. In conclusion, and looking at, of course, the events that took place this week, and, and reflecting... This is what I want us to do, our walk with God. And of course, that's not something that we should just do every now and then. We should always be reflecting on our walk with God. 
We have to ask two basic questions as we are trying to grow in our friendship with, with Christ and, and our actions trying to be consistent and reflected upon our testimony. We have to ask the questions, how is our walk with our friend? Is our friendship with God growing? Of course, we know that God is our heavenly father and our elder brother. But a friend is even a new dimension. Are we growing and trying to learn more about what Jesus says that we are? Are we trying to walk closer? Are we trying to learn the mind of God more? And then so, of course, being a better testimony to others. We must remember that we are weak, or where we are weak, God is strong. The things that are out of our control are not out of God's control. We must remember that God has the power to get us through the sudden storms in life. And these sudden storms often give us the opportunity to be a witness to others. Because as believers, we have a hope, as I've mentioned in the beginning, that is stronger, more sure, and greater than any sudden storm that may come upon us. And we are called to live our lives out in a way that is a response to authenticating this claim that we have in being followers of Jesus Christ. And of course, we have to remember this is a process. All of us. We ever going to be fearful again? Of course. Every one of us are going to struggle. And every one of us, there's going to be things in this life because we're still humans. There's going to be times where we're still unsure. We're still you know, not completely confident, but we are trying to grow in that. We're trying to come to that perfection that is in Christ. We can show our faith and testimony in the midst of the sudden storms. When we truly are seeking after Christ in our walk with Him on a daily basis. As we leave here today, of course, I think all of us should you know, reflect on these things, but also reflect on the things that we can be in this world as a testimony to Christ. As a testimony to the faith the true faith, the living faith that is more sure and greater. And of course our prayers are with those around our country, uh, mourning loss, uh, struggling with the, with the injuries uh, that have been sustained both in, in Texas and as well as in Boston, among other people and families. As we leave here today, we must remember the faith and the stewardship that we've been given as representatives of God which is a great responsibility. As God has called us, we, His church, to be the light of this world.